Hello. I'd like to share with you from Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Well, verse 35, the last verse there that we read, says that whoever does God's will is Jesus' brother, sister and mother. Or, in other words, is a part of Jesus' family. The key thing to note is the qualification. Whoever does God's will. God's call upon our lives is to do his will. This is what a disciple of Jesus does. In this passage, we're going to see that we are not to be distracted from doing God's will. Distraction from carrying out God's will very easily occur. We can start following Jesus and then be pulled in another direction. Very often these tugs seem to be for good reasons, some less so. We may be following Jesus and then calls of family overwhelm our time and energy so that we cannot read about Jesus, we can't meet with other Christians or serve him. The same is true with work, friends, hobbies, etc. These things can take us away from doing God's will. What started off so promising eventually can fizzle away. For those of you who can remember wonderful days of many people in youth groups and fellowships, what happened to so many people who profess Jesus as their Lord and their Saviour? Where are they today? Some people can even intervene in our life to try and stop us from following Jesus. Distraction from carrying out God's will often arise. On many occasions, we pursue these distractions instead of doing God's will. Why is this? 
Well, I think it's because we lose sight of what is most important. When you're focused upon the goal, nothing else can persuade you from the task. Just look at an Olympian. They are focused upon the goal of winning gold. They have their sight set on what is most important. People become distracted when options arise and prefer them to what is most important. When seeking to do God's will and another option arises, when we commit to that option instead of doing God's will, the Bible calls this sin. Sin ultimately leads to judgment and to death if we don't turn back to God and seek forgiveness. Well, given that all of us don't do God's will all of the time, what hope do we have? Well, Jesus. We see that Jesus faced precisely this problem of distraction from doing God's will. Jesus has just come down from the mountain to Capernaum. He had appointed the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles at the top of that mountain and he has come down to Capernaum. So many people were interested in Jesus that he was surrounded by a crowd and not even able to eat. By this time, his family in Nazareth had heard about the extraordinary things that Jesus had been doing. And we read in verse 21, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Well, after reading this, we're then told about Jesus' interaction with the teachers of the law who had come down from Jerusalem. But then if we go further forward to verses 31 to 35, we read this. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. We know from chapter 1 that Jesus had been called and commissioned by God to do the work of God's Son and the servant of the Lord that would involve him proclaiming the kingdom of God and destroying Satan. Now Jesus receives a counter call, a call to go back home, to act as if there had been no call from God. It was a serious distraction. Jesus responded by saying that he will continue with those who want to do the will of God. A commentator called William Lane said, In the new family which Jesus calls into being, there is demanded the radical obedience to God, which he demonstrated in his submission to the Father. Jesus' family were concerned about his well-being and also their family's reputation, which is why they intervened. For Jesus to have gone with them would have meant distraction from his father's greater call. Jesus was not saying that family was unimportant, just that the new family of God takes precedence. Jesus was not distracted 
from doing God's will. Now, what separates verses 20 and 21 from verses 31 to 35 informs us of the content of God's will for Jesus. This entire passage, in fact, from verses 20 to 35, can be described as having a sandwich structure. The family components represent the bread on either side of the contents, which describes God's will for Jesus. Now, what we see in the contents of the sandwich is verses 22 to 30. And we learn that God's will for Jesus involves three things. First of all, correcting error. Secondly, stating his mission. And thirdly, issuing warning. So first of all, correcting error. We read in verses 22 to 26. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. We know from chapter 3, verse 6, that the Pharisees and the Herodians were plotting to kill Jesus. The teachers of the law referred to in verse 22 would be in keeping with this spirit. They repudiated Jesus just as his family had effectively done by seeking to take charge of him. Now, exorcism of demons has been so far and will remain throughout his ministry in Galilee one of the most prominent aspects of Jesus' ministry. What was so terrible was that the teachers of the law were attributing the source of Jesus' power to exorcise demons to Beelzebul or Satan, as we learn in verse 23, and therefore to evil. They were doing what was condemned by Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. The teachers of the law were deliberately perverting truth about Jesus. So Jesus responds with some parables. A parable, in this case, is a one-line word picture. The purpose of these parables was to show the logical absurdity of what the teachers of the law suggested. Summarizing what Jesus said, Robert Steen put it this way, Satan would not work through Jesus to undo his own work. So through the parables, Jesus seeks to correct their error of understanding. In this passage, we also see Jesus stating his mission. In verse 27, Jesus said, In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. The strong man is Satan. 
Jesus is saying that Satan's kingdom is not being self-destroyed from within, but overcome from without by one who is mightier than Satan. That is, by Jesus himself. Jesus was the stronger man. The victory over Satan, begun with exorcisms, will decisively come about by Jesus submitting to crucifixion and being raised from the dead. By his death, Jesus would break the power of Satan who holds the power of death and free all those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. We learn that from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. In going to the cross and rising again, Jesus would fulfill his mission prophesied in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 49, verses 24 to 26, which speaks of captives being saved from those who are fierce. A major part of Jesus' mission was to destroy Satan. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, which we've considered before, says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So Jesus has been correcting error, stating his mission, and thirdly, issuing warning. Jesus said in verses 28 to 30, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Well, Jesus thought that the teachers of the law were close to blaspheming against the Holy Spirit and wanted to warn them about committing this sin, which is the only sin that cannot be forgiven. Well, what is blasphemy? Well, according to William Lane, blasphemy is an expression of defiant hostility toward God. What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Wayne Grudem said that it is not simply referring to unbelief or rejection of Christ. Instead, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is these three things. First of all, having a clear knowledge of who Jesus is and of the power of the Holy Spirit working through him. Then willfully rejecting the facts about Jesus that are known to be true and slanderously attributing the work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus to the power of Satan. So it is those three things. Grudem goes on to say, in such a case, the hardness of heart would be so great that any ordinary means of bringing a sinner to repentance would already have been rejected. In this case, it is not that the sin itself is so horrible that it could not be covered by Christ's redemptive work, but rather that the sinner's hardened heart puts him or her beyond the reach of God's ordinary means of bringing forgiveness through repentance and trusting Christ for salvation. Well, could you or I have committed this sin? Well, Grudem said... The fact that the unpardonable sin involves such extreme hardness of heart and lack of repentance indicates that those who fear they have committed it yet still have sorrow for sin in their heart and desire to seek after God 
certainly do not fall in the category of those who are guilty of it. And then Graham Cole also helpfully has said, in my view, the sin is not simply opposing Jesus on a particular occasion. In Mark, Jesus warned the Pharisees that they were in danger of committing this sin. He did not declare that they had actually committed it. After all, he reasoned with them. The appeal to reason suggests that the Pharisees had not yet fallen into the abyss. Jesus was issuing warning for people not to adopt this position of deliberate rejection and antagonism of Jesus. So to conclude, God's will for Jesus involved correcting error, stating his mission and issuing warning. Jesus was someone who perfectly did God's will to the extent of even dying upon the cross so that our sins can be forgiven. We read of this forgiveness in verse 28 when Jesus said, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins. This was said by Jesus in anticipation of going to the cross, atoning for our sins, so that we could be at one with God. We are able to be forgiven by God for our sins if we repent and believe in Jesus. Well, the call remains. We are to do God's will. How are we to do this? By looking to the clearest revelation of God in the person of Jesus and realising he is the most important person in our life who has proven his great love for us by dying upon the cross so that our sins can be forgiven. When we realise who Jesus is and recognise that he is the most important person in our life, we won't be distracted because we will be consumed by him, by how important he is, by how wonderful he is. And when we do this, then we have strength to be able to do God's will. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for the clear call upon our lives for us to do your will. We are sorry for our sin in not doing this, but we thank you so very much that Jesus did and he has died for us upon the cross so that we can be forgiven. We trust in your son Jesus and we thank you for the forgiveness of sins that you grant to us. Please enable us to be strengthened to do your will as we look to your Son and realise how important and how wonderful he is. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.